I want to try to define my gender, but it's really hard in 60 seconds, so I'm going to talk really fast. I'm gender fluid, and here's how that works for me. Most of the time, I'm one of two, like, modes or mindsets. Most of the time, I am this weird amalgamation of, like, genders and vibes and essence and just being that I literally cannot define. I don't know. You're just going to have to take my word for it. It's like the universe. It's, like, ever-flowing. There's, like sparkles and it's just like it, it changes over time and it moves through each other and it's never it's never one thing and then other like majority of the time I'm just a void like there's nothing there it, it there's just an absence and I don't know how else to describe it so either everything or nothing those are the two that I'm usually in but then every once in a while I don't know where it comes from but I'll just be thrust back into a binary I'll just be sitting there chilling enjoying my life and then all of a sudden I'm a man like, who asked? Or a woman? Since when? Welcome to Disaffected. I'm Joshua Slocum, coming to you from Dystopian. Burlington, Vermont. This is the show where we talk about politics, culture, and relationships through a psychological lens. And we opened with that video of that young woman for a couple of reasons. I wanted to touch on a few points that that illustrated. I guess at first, I'm going to give you a few selected responses that that got on Twitter. There's a little bit of amusement, but then there's also a little bit of a deeper point. So the first one um, comes from a mutual follower, PNW Selena, and she says, a woman since when? Uh, since age 18, my dear. Your sparkles and entire universe vibes aren't fooling anyone aside from others in your weird self-obsessed cohort. Well, yes. <laughs> yes, correct. Next one gives us a little bit of levity. Haikus from Underground says, Peter Griffin is trans now. I'm going to bed. <laughs> going to bed is always a very good idea. There's a lot of things that have put me in bed this week. The flu being one of them. But then looking at Twitter, right back to bed. Um, but the next one gives me a chance to launch into what I really want to talk about with this. And this comes from a guy named Jim Jones. And he said, she just described bipolar disorder. Close but no cigar. Um, this gives me an opportunity to reinforce a point that I'd like everybody who watches and listens to the show to, to understand. That young woman in that opening video talking about her confusion that she feels she has a gender sometimes and not others sometimes she feels like a woman other times she just feels like a universe well obviously as everyone knows i can't diagnose but i can say what it looks like to me that ki that kind of identity confusion is really classic telltale signs of borderline personality disorder, not bipolar disorder. The confusion between bipolar and bipolar, remember, is just the newer term for manic depression, what we always used to call manic depression. So a person with bipolar generally has 
manic states are hypomanic states, which means just below manic, but not all the way, you know, not completely over the top. Um, down into extreme depressive states, often uh, suicidal depression. And in most cases with bipolar disorder slash manic depression, we're talking about a cycle that happens over weeks, right? The, the troughs come and go like this. But with borderline, we're talking like this in a day, right? And that's very different. Um, and that's important. I mean, is it important to you? Well, it depends on what you think is important. Uh, but for accuracy's sake, that is not what bipolar disorder necessarily looks like. I mean, I, just, I don't know the woman. I've only seen uh, one small video clip of her. But it really does fall in line with everything we've been talking about this show on uh, about on this show for several years. You know, young people who are displaying signs of trauma. Um, identity confusion, um, emotional dysregulation, um, inability to get their thoughts organized about who they are and what they're supposed to be doing in the world. This identity confusion and identity instability and emotional instability is much more characteristic of borderline personality disorder. And borderline personality disorder lends itself really, really well to trans because to a, it, I don't mean this literally, but analogously into a close approximation, trans itself looks like borderline personality disorder. That level of identity confusion is something that you don't see in most other mental health syndromes. Um, and I want to back that up a little bit. There's a, let me give you a quote here from the National Alliance for the Mentally Ill. You can find this if you want to look this up and you want to distinguish between manic depression and borderline personality disorder. There's a lot of information out there um, online. And even the medical literature says that this is a, a really common misdiagnosis that professionals make. So here's what the National Alliance for the Mentally Ill says. Borderline personality disorder looks like so many other mental health conditions People with BPD typically also meet the criteria for multiple other diagnoses, including depression, anxiety, post-traumatic stress disorder, substance use, eating disorders, bipolar disorder, and so on. These disorders, of course, are not independent of borderline personality disorder, but are connected and related through shared psychological, social, and biological pathways. However, when these other diagnoses are the focus of treatment, they can dominate professionals' attention, preventing any significant focus on the whole pattern of difficulties resulting in a missed diagnosis of borderline personality disorder. There's a little more I'm going to cut. I'm going to cut in here uh, and then give you more of that quote. This matters because if you have somebody in your life who wants to get help for their problem, they need to have that problem accurately identified. The treatments for borderline personality disorder and for bipolar or manic depression are miles apart. There may be some overlap in some places, but manic depression is not a personality disorder. Um, and I say this advisedly, but I don't think, well, actually, I don't even know if I say it advisedly. advisedly. Um, some people believe it has an organic uh, brain structure origin, but there's a good argument to be made that it can be a consequence of trauma as well, just like borderline personality disorder. So not quite sure what to say about that. But the treatments are very different. I mean, you know, standard line treatment for manic depression, lithium, 
is not going to do a thing for borderline personality disorder. And that quote focuses on what you might call opportunity costs, the missed opportunity to actually treat the disorder that a person has rather than the one that everyone thinks they have. Back to that quote from uh, the National Alliance. In particular, there is evidence that borderline personality disorder is commonly misdiagnosed as bipolar disorder type 2. One study showed that 40% of people who met criteria for borderline, but not for bipolar, were nevertheless misdiagnosed with bipolar type 2. This is most likely due to some similarities between symptoms, impulsive behavior, intense emotions, and suicidal thinking. However, they are very different diagnoses with different treatment methods, so it's crucial for mental health professionals to understand and know the difference. Yes, it is. And this is one of the reasons among many, that I object to the don't diagnose mantra that you often hear from people online and social media when you point out and say, hey, this looks like syndrome X or personality disorder Y. Doctors themselves can't get this right. I mean, if you can take, you can take a panel of five actual mental health clinicians of, of different sorts. Some might be just psychotherapists, some might be actual psychiatrists, And you can put one person or case in front of them, and you can get five different diagnoses. This is a known problem. It's not a new problem. It's a really intractable problem, but it's what we have. But a lot of people go to a doctor, and they go to their general practitioner. I mean, I I certainly did over the years, um, you know, my diagnoses of major depressive disorder, panic disorder, obsessive compulsive disorder. One of those was diagnosed by a psychiatrist, but the rest of them were diagnosed by a general practitioner. Um, And general practitioners are general. That's what they do. They're not specialists. But they should know the difference between borderline personality disorder and manic depression, and many of them don't. So when people say, don't diagnose, don't diagnose, don't notice, I, I would say back to them, well, first of all, we're allowed to use our minds and our own judgment and our own knowledge to come to conclusions. But secondly, we cannot depend on experts. I mean, has that not been made manifestly clear from the past four years, the whole COVID alleged pandemic? What did experts tell us? Basically lies, the whole time, lies. Now, keeping with trans, because as we've said before, this is probably the most obvious expression of our societal malaise is the transgender juggernaut. Let me reintroduce you to somebody we've talked about in the show before. Her name is Dr. Sive Gallagher of Miami. She's a surgeon. You may remember her. She calls herself Dr. Titus Deletus, as in delete the tits or yeet the teats. Here she is on your screen. She likes herself a lot on social media. She likes to post pictures of herself um, in these sort of jocular things like this. And it says, just realized I only get to eat four teats next week. Crying, happy, sad face. Strange mixed messages here. Disturbing. Well, uh, here's another one. Um, She's very proud of what she does. On your screen here, picture of her pointing to one of her patients on the right. Obviously a young woman, maybe in her early 20s, who's had what they call top surgery, which is radical bilateral mastectomy, slicing the breasts off, otherwise healthy tissue. And the patient here is, of course, affecting how happy she is. I know I'm supposed to call 
her he, but I'm not going to. Seven months post-op baby. Yeah. Great. And there's Dr. Gallagher. Look what I did. Well, we have said before that Dr. Gallagher appears to have a sociopathic disregard for the well-being of these young people and the patients that she's treating. She's helping them to ruin their lives. Well, this self-report from one of Dr. Gallagher's patients came out on social media this week. Take a listen to this young woman who, who sees herself as a trans man. Stop scrolling if you or someone that you love wants top surgery. I got top surgery in August of 2022, so this year. Um, and I don't regret top surgery, but I do regret who I got surgery with, and I need to talk about it. The reason it's so important that this is on TikTok is because so is she. She has a massive platform, and her name is Dr. Gallagher. Four days after top surgery with Dr. Gallagher, my top surgery incision split open and started bleeding. At first, she said that it was just bruising, and then when she saw me in person the day before, I flew home. Um, she said that it was fluid buildup and that it had to just bleed out on its own through the open wound. I flew back to Ohio, and the bleeding did not stop. I was waking up to blood all over my clothes and sheets every single day. I could barely move or leave the house. At one point, I did decide a couple weeks after surgery to go out with some friends. I was slow, I was careful, and about halfway through the night, a blood clot the size of a golf ball fell out of me. I was rushed to the emergency room. I was in tachycardia by the time I got there. They admitted me and paged their plastic surgery team. The resident there took a photo and I sent that photo as well as the blood clot to Dr. Gallagher. She replied back and made a joke that I was menstruating and said I didn't need to go to the ER, even though I'd already gone. The next day I woke up and the hole in my incision had collapsed into a black hollow cavity. There was discolored tissue spilling out of it um, and it looked like it was gonna open more. There was also another hole farther back on the incision that was starting to rip. I took photos, graphic photos of my body and I sent them to Gallagher in a panic. At this point, I reached out to a local top surgeon uh, and sent him my photos. He squeezed me in first thing the next morning and when I saw him, he said that by sight alone, he could tell that it was severely infected. He was really angry with Dr. Gallagher and he told me that she didn't give a shit about me. He said I would need surgery that Friday, so three days later. When I got home from that appointment, I opened my email to see Dr. Gallagher's response, expecting her to urge me to go seek a second opinion given the complications that I was having. And instead she told me it was looking good and that it wasn't infected. I was put under anesthesia for a second surgery on the 2nd of September, and they took out over half a foot of dead, rotten tissue from my left side of my body. The doctors told me that I could have gone septic and that this bacteria has a very high mortality rate. Gallagher had told me to do absolutely nothing about it. If I had listened to her, I would be dead. They gave me an extra large drain and I had to have it in for over three weeks. When I shared my story on Twitter, I got countless replies from people expressing that they had similar issues with Gallagher. <sighs> that poor young woman. I know she says that she doesn't regret getting what she calls top surgery. Um, I think one day she probably will. Um, but she almost went septic. 
She had dead necrotic tissue. I mean, you know, there's always a risk of complications from surgery. But this sounds really slapdash. And the fact that she went back to the surgeon who did this and the surgeon told her, there's nothing wrong with you. There's nothing wrong with your wound. This is all normal. Just 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 let it happen. She could be dead. Why doesn't this seem to endanger Dr. Gallagher's medical license? I mean, we could back up and we could look at this from from a block away and say, why doesn't performing bilateral mastectomies on healthy young women who claim to be men, why doesn't that itself endanger your medical license? In a sane world, it should. And even though we've never had a perfect world and the medical system has never been perfect, there was a time in living memory when that kind of behavior would have been considered the grotesque mutilation it was and a violation of every doctor's oath. Not now. And we're going to round out this segment staying on the same topic, trans. This is about the International Olympic Committee. Things are getting worse on the reality front when it comes to transgender and sports. The Olympics, the International Olympic Committee, now just allows straight-up men to compete as women with no qualifications and no contingencies whatsoever. What do I mean? Here's an article from MSN. I'll read you the introduction. The International Olympic Committee announced a new framework for transgender and intersex athletes Tuesday, dropping controversial policies that required competing athletes to undergo, quote, medically unnecessary procedures or treatments. In a six-page document, the IOC outlined 10 principles, which it described as, quote, grounded on the respect for internationally recognized human rights, end quote that sports competition should follow. It also said it will no longer require athletes to undergo hormone-level modifications to compete. Okay, so plain English translation. You say that you're a man, and you simply declare that you are a woman. You've had no surgery. You're not taking any hormones. You're not suppressing your testosterone. I mean, I agree these are medically unnecessary procedures, but this just gives the lie to the whole... uh, how do I say this, to the whole farce, right, of pretending that men who come in and say, I'm a trans woman, are actually women and should be on women's sports teams. It's farce. Let's, let me share another quote with you. This is number nine, Kevin. This framework recognizes both the need to ensure that everyone, irrespective of their gender identity or sex variations, can practice sport in a safe, harassment-free environment that recognizes and respects their needs and identities, the International Olympic Committee said. Well, how's it been going and how is it now? Up until 2016, the International Olympic Committee required actual genital surgery to be accept, uh, on a man to be accepted as a woman who could compete in the Olympics as a woman. That's gone now. That, that wasn't okay. That didn't make them women. It didn't make it fair. And if you want to look at it from another angle, it's an internationally prestigious committee associated with the Olympics putting a moral stamp of approval on the idea of sex change surgeries, which is troubling on its own. But it still didn't make it okay. It didn't mean that these men who came in here suddenly had smaller lung mass, uh, uh, lower uh, fast muscle, fast twitch muscle fiber, 
But I suppose I should say at least they were pretending that something mattered, that there was some difference between men and women. Well, and up that's gone. So that was gone in 2016. No more requirement for surgery. But up until now, the IOC has required at least some testosterone suppression in men who call themselves women. That was never enough either. It didn't get them anywhere near uh, the level of uh, the small level of testosterone that naturally occurs in women, nor, of course, did it take away their skeletal structure or their, their bigger hearts and bigger lung capacity. But it was something. Now they require nothing at all. You just say you're a woman and you compete as a woman. And yes, that of course, that works in the other direction as well. You can just say you're a man and, and compete as a man. But we're going to see much less of that, aren't we, of course, because trans men are actually women and are not going to be able to outcompete top male athletes. So we're not going to see it happening in that direction nearly as much. Well, everybody's favorite sports star, um, runner, woman, trans man named Chris Mosier thinks this is just great. And this is what Chris has to say. Quote, the new IOC framework makes clear that no athlete has an inherent advantage and moves away from eligibility criteria focused on testosterone levels, a practice that caused harmful and abusive practices such as physical examinations, and sex testing. This is a total reality break. No athlete has inherent advantages. Think about that statement. Michael Phelps, the swimmer, has no inherent advantages over people who do not have Michael Phelps's extraordinary body and athletic ability. Men don't have any inherent advantages over women when it comes to, um, to sports. Nobody has any inherent advantages. All right, then, Chris Mosier, why do you need to compete as a man? Why not just compete as the woman you are? Why? Why? Well, we're not segregating the Olympics by sex anymore, are we? But why are we even pretending that we are if nobody has any inherent advantages? And Chris is right. This certainly does reflect the thinking of the International Olympic Committee. Chris Mosier calls physical examinations of athletes and sex testing, quote, abusive. This is pure narcissistic reversal. This is reality inversion, just like we see on almost every story I bring you on the show every week. Anything, anything that holds truth and fairness as a principle is called abusive. For this set, reality itself is abusive. All right, we're coming up on a break here. But I, I want to ask for your feedback, listeners, viewers. When he's putting the show together this week, um, we were late today. Um, it's both Kevin and I were uh, sick this week. Um, I had something. I didn't get tested. But I had something that I'm pretty sure was the flu. And um, I'm still getting back to 100%. When that happens to me, it, it knocks my mind for a loop, too. It really throws me off kilter. Uh, in terms of my level of optimism, hope, anxiety, all these things really kind of darkens my view. So I'm not sure if I'm seeing clearly this week, but as I'm looking at all these things that I'm bringing to you in the show, as I'm looking at uh, just last night, um, protesters in support of Yemen screaming and uh, looking like they were on the edge of a riot outside the White House. This is becoming normal. There are people um, screaming outside the White House. They were climbing the gates to the White House, and I think it was dispersed, but it looked like they were going to get real close to breaching the perimeter. 
Um, it seems to me that as more people are waking up to the excesses of woke and hard left politics, that woke and hard left politics are just getting harder. More and more is being pushed at us by the mainstream media. We're starting to hear that the World Health Organization is, wants us to get ready for the next deadlier pandemic. Audience, what do you see? Leave a comment under this video or wherever you see it, please. Are we accelerating? Is woke accelerating? Is it part of perhaps an extinction burst? Is it accelerating because things always get darker before the dawn? Or are we ratcheting down without hope of coming back? I, I know that none of us can read the future. I know that none of us have the answer on this. Um, I'm not very hopeful, but I'm also not convinced that I'm not heavily filtering that through my own state of mind right now. So leave a comment. Tell me what you think about this. What do you see in the world? What do you predict? It's the beginning of the year. Throw out some predictions. All right. Uh, we're going to take a break. We'll see you on the other side. Can't get enough of our love, baby? That's because you're not subscribed. Move that thumb over to the great big old subscribe button on your podcast app so you never miss an episode. We put out audio-only exclusive content that you won't get on any other video platform, so make sure you subscribe today. Looking for a non-woke place to put your money where your mouth is? Put it where my mouth is. Disaffected supporters get access to our private Discord chat server, backstage episode recording sessions, surprise guests, and more. And all it takes is $10 a month. You've got two options. Either Substack, visit us at disaffectedpod.substack.com, or go over to subscribestar.com slash disaffected. Remember, choose the $10 level or higher for Discord access. Welcome back. I know that uh, part of my black-pilled outlook this week is based on my personal experiences this week. I'm not sure if it's all of it, but it is some of it. This is an example. I told you before we went to the break, I'm not sure what I'm seeing out in the world. I uh, Things look like they're getting worse to me on a lot of fronts. Um, and, and I think they, they look that way to a lot of you as well, but... Uh, I'm not sure if they're getting worse toward a better end, right? Is it, um, are we sliding all the way down so that there will be an upswing at the bottom and we can have some hope? I don't know. But here's, here's one of the things that got me thinking about that this week. I had to apply for health insurance through the state of Vermont's um, online portal. This is how they deal with the Obamacare. This is how they deal with... Um, getting people at certain income levels uh, subsidies to pay the extraordinary health insurance costs. Um, and the health insurance costs, I, I know they are everywhere. I don't know every state, but I can tell you here in Vermont, even the cheapest, uh, highest deductible health insurance plans are 
equivalent to more than a rent or mortgage. It's that bad. I was looking at some of the cheapest possible plans. And as many of you know, I lost my job a year ago at the end of December 2022. I had to leave my job because I was being driven out by a woke cancellation mob. Um, and so, of course, my health insurance ended. But I can tell you that even then, even when I had paid health insurance through the company, the rates were extraordinary. And now the cheapest, what they call bronze plan, you know, they do it in tiers of metal, precious metals, semi-precious metals. The cheapest one is now $200 more expensive than the very good gold plan that I had paid for when I worked for the nonprofit organization. So it's like, how, did, how is this possible? Well, last year they raised the rates in Vermont 14%. And this was after years. I remember because, of course, I was the administrator. Uh, I had to make decisions about this. Uh, I did the budget when I worked for the, for the nonprofit. And I remember seeing rate increases between 9 and 11% year after year after year. How much further can this go on? I, seriously, how high can this get before the system actually collapses? Who can afford this? Let me tell you what the application process was like. It's an example of infrastructure breaking down. And I mean physical infrastructure, but I also mean intellectual infrastructure, service infrastructure, human competence infrastructure if you will. I don't know what it's like where you are, but there are, it, the roads, for example, have always been bad in Vermont. Uh, it's, a, you know, in a state where you have lots of freezing and thawing, it's always a big job to keep up with keeping the roads paved. It's always going to be that way, but it's never been this bad. I live, I've lived in the Northeast most of my life. It's never been this bad. I am not kidding you when I tell you that in certain places I go to certain streets and even certain parking lots have had axle-breaking potholes in them that have not been touched since before COVID. I'm not making it up. That's how bad it is. All right. <laughs> Let me get out of the physical and into the, uh, into the digital here. So you have to apply for health insurance through the state's portal if you want to get any financial assistance. Um, and I'm going to take my tax dollars and get that assistance because God knows I can't afford health insurance. I can barely afford it now. But certainly without uh, that advanced tax credit subsidy, no way. Absolutely no way. So you log in you have to create an account. And this is where it started. They're using a digital system run by Oracle Software, and I don't know what kind of rep I know that Oracle is a big name. I don't know what kind of reputation it has among people who know these things, whether it's good or bad. But every interaction I've had with it uh, through a state website has been absolutely painful. Imagine, as I tell you about this, imagine what it would be like for your grandmother or your grandfather, somebody who's really not that comfortable and familiar with doing things online as much as, as younger people. And yes, compared to your grandpa, I'm a younger people. <laughs> um, so I try to create a username and a password, and I follow all their little instructions, you know, must contain this character, must contain uh, X 
numbers of this kind of character cannot contain this character. I mean, it's, it's you know, it's all complicated stuff. I happen to use a password vault system. I have I have a service that, that creates passwords and tracks them for me, keeps them all organized. This system is set up to meet all of those requirements. So it, it knows that it has to give X number of special characters, all this stuff. I And I follow instructions carefully. I work methodically carefully and I go step by step and I check myself at steps. I'm very, very careful with this stuff. I was not making mistakes. Well, the system just shut down as I was trying to create an account. Uh, locked me out on creating a password and said, you know, system error, you know, cannot blah, blah, blah. This necessitates me calling the 800 number, which they claim will get me to Vermont Health Connect, a state health department. Um, but I can tell from the numerous people that I spoke to over the phone that I'm talking to people all over the world. A couple of them were Americans. One of them was in India. Um, I don't think any of them were from Vermont or had ever been to the state. Finally, get let back in. I have to complete this long application. You have to list, you know, who's in your household, where you live, what your job is. Um, and for freelancers, uh, people like me, it's complicated because you have to estimate what income you're going to have projected throughout the year. I don't know what income I'm going to have. I don't know how many people are going to come to me for coaching and consulting. I don't know any of these things. So I have to, I have to estimate quite difficult. And and you better estimate carefully, because if you don't and you underestimate and you get too much financial help, the IRS will come back to you next year and give you a bill on top of your taxes. So it's, it's difficult and it's frustrating. Um, I get all the way through this, estimating my income. How much am I going to make freelance? Um, how, how much profit will I have left over from the upstairs tenants in my house who pay me rent? The answer is very little, likely. Um, and I have to make these guesses. And I go through this whole thing, and it takes me about 35 minutes to complete it. And I hit confirm. And it sits there, and it spins, and it spins. And it does this for about a minute and 30 seconds. And I'm like, oh, my God, please, please don't. Don't lose all the work that I put in, please. Yeah, lost it all. Syst unexpected system error. Contact an administrator. What does that mean? Is that a message to an internal worker that I need to contact an Oracle administrator? Is that telling me, the taxpayer and consumer, that I have to call Vermont Health Connect? Well, I call Vermont Health Connect. This is what I have to go through at this point. Uh, Representative cannot get back into my application and alter it. The system will not allow her to do this. So we have to do it over the phone. And they have to read you a script, many scripts, actually. And the first part of the script they read you warns you that this is going to take up to 45 minutes. And mind you, all the questions they're asking that I, that I filled out on the screen, these are difficult things to take in with your ears then mentally visualize with your eyes while you're trying to do arithmetic and then speak back to a person. This is something that is much easier to do if you have paper or a screen in front of you that's showing you the information. So I go through this whole tedious process and it's really difficult um, because I'm talking to someone and she's an American. She was very nice, but she was almost functionally illiterate. Couldn't pronounce city names, didn't understand that I was giving her a city name when I said Montpelier. I'd never heard of a word like that before. 
what what the hell, man? What's going on with people? So, <laughs> we get all the way to the end. She tells me she's completed my application and tells me to go back to the website and see if that approved application is now in my account so that I can choose health insurance. It's not there. It simply is not there. It's not there on her end either. She doesn't know what to tell me. I'm, I'm frustrated beyond belief. I end up calling back. I get another representative. Again, she's very nice to me, but difficult to parse for an accent. And she, she wants me to do it over the phone again with her. And at this point, I've spent about two and a half hours. And I said, ma'am, I, I, I appreciate you. I know that this is not within your control personally. And I appreciate that you are trying to help me. So thank you. But I, I, I don't want to do this over the phone again because I just did it with a representative. And she could see that. She could see from my record in her computer that I had completed an application. It just wasn't available to anybody. So the only thing to do was start over. And I said, I don't trust that the system will accept it from you either. And I don't know what to do. And we go round and round. And she's like, well, I can send you a paper application. And I said, ma'am. The open enrollment period ends, this show is being recorded today, by the way, uh, the 14th of January, open enrollment ends tomorrow, the 15th, and their offices at Vermont Health Connect were not going to be open regular hours for most of last week. And I said, there's no way. By the time a paper application arrives at my house, it will be past the deadline, let alone in time for me to actually use the postal service to get it back in time. Bless this woman. She finally figures out. She says, let's check the spelling of your last name. Now, any of you who have done applications like this know that you talk to people over the phone that you have to be, you have to spell your name. I do it, you know, I do it like this. People, how do you spell your last name? It's Slocum. I'll say it and spell it. Slocum, that's S as in Samuel, L-O-C-U-M as in Michael. That's exactly how I speak when I'm doing it over the phone because I want people to understand me. And phone connections these days aren't great. So the original rep did this with me a couple times, repeated it back to me, still could not type my name in right. It was in there under soul come. If this second representative had not figured this out, I would have missed the entire open enrollment health insurance period for an entire year. This is just normal. How many other people or people who aren't as persistent as I am, or the elderly, are simply missing out on services they're entitled to because the state can't even meet a minimum level of competence. Um, and it's not just this software. Um, my part-time side gig writing um, and editing news copy, having terrible time with my writer's pool getting me, getting me copy. Because basic programs from Microsoft that all of us, at least people my age, have been familiar with almost, well, real, no, really, actually, since, since high school. Things like Microsoft Word, Microsoft Outlook, the email program, their basic functions are simply not working anymore. The behavior is inconsistent. You try to attach something. Sometimes it attaches. Sometimes it doesn't. And it isn't just me. This is happening with, with people throughout my writer's pool. I'm getting emails from them with three attachments. And I write back and I say, hey, you were only due to have one article in today, but I see that you've sent three. Could you tell me? And they're saying, what are you talking about? I only sent you one. And I'm saying, no, I've got three here. And they say, no, I only sent one. It, it, I had to resort to doing screenshots Trading screenshots with one of my writers, 
you know, th- that whole thing, it drives me almost as crazy as the, uh, the cell phone, can you hear me now? When you have to say to people, um, let me show you how it displays for me. I hate the for me. This is a new thing in the internet. It's new as of past five to 10 years. Everything is different. It's all custom. It's all bespoke. It's supposed to be personalized for our convenience, but it has created a Tower of Babel. You and I do not see the same things when we're looking at the same email thread. So it turns out that this writer really did only send me one copy of an article. I saw his screenshot, but I showed him my screenshot. Three articles came in. Nobody can explain it. My boss at this gig has had the same problem, same problem with... um, uh, Microsoft Word, uh, using different spelling dictionaries, um, insisting uh, it won't save things in the places that you normally save them. It wants to nudge you and push you into uploading things to its cloud. All right, I'll stop. I'll stop going on about this. But again, viewers, audience, have you had these experiences? I mean, yes or no? Leave a comment under here. I would really love to hear your experiences. Um, and if you want to really go off about this, do so. Because uh, next week I'll read some of your comments and, and share the experiences with the rest of the audience. Let's go to British Columbia, Canada, which is now welcoming drug junkies. This is from Canada's National Post. Um, and the thing I'd like you to keep in mind here is external locus of control and blame shifting, blame transference. From the National Post. British Columbia was already nine months into an unprecedented pilot project to decriminalize personal amounts of illicit drugs. Fentanyl, heroin, cocaine, methamphetamine, MDMA. So long as it was only 2.5 grams, By federal exemption, it was now legal to possess illicit drugs basically anywhere in British Columbia. The Playground Amendment, enacted on September 18th, dialed it back ever so slightly. You could still possess illicit drugs without consequence, but you couldn't do it within 15 meters of a playground, skate park, or outdoor spray pool or wading pool. Schools and child care facility premises had already been written into the original decriminalization order. So, carrying around up to 2.5 grams of cocaine or fentanyl or heroin is now just legal in British Columbia. Oh, Canada. But... That playground amendment that I just told you about saying, okay, but you can't carry this stuff within 15 meters of a, of a playground or a public school. Uh-uh. The BC Supreme Court doesn't want to hear that. And they're not going to allow even that tiny little bit of pushback. Quote, this is number 11, Kevin. But in an injunction issued just before the end of 2023, the B.C. Supreme Court ruled that even this most delicate check against public drug use was a violation of the Charter of Rights and Freedoms. Next quote. In a December 29th injunction, B.C. Supreme Court Chief Justice Christopher Hinkson ruled that it would impose, quote, irreparable harm if drug users were warned away from public areas, 
even if that came at the expense of public parks filled with biohazardous drug paraphernalia and other, quote, social harms, such as, quote, unpredictable behavior. And the National Post article has a few quotes from Judge Hinkson's decision. Here's one. I accept that, yeah, we don't, I'm sorry, Kevin, we don't have a graphic for this. I'm just going to read it out. I accept that the attendant public safety risks are particularly concerning, given that many of the restricted areas and places in the act are frequented by seniors, people with disabilities, and families with young children, wrote Hinkson, the judge. Nevertheless, he concluded that given the severity of the overdose crisis, those concerns had to take second place. Quote, I am satisfied that the suspension of the act can be properly characterized as a substantial public benefit, he wrote. <laughs> I'm going back to the article. It's just a temporary injunction until March 31st, but the entire decision was premised on Section 7 of the Charter of Rights and Freedoms, Canada's Charter of Rights and Freedoms. In essence, Hinkson ruled that British Columbia's attempt to restrict open drug use in public areas was a violation of, quote, the right to life, liberty, and security of the person. This, in turn, was premised on Hinkson accepting the assertion by the plaintiff the Harm Reduction Nurses Association was the plaintiff. That any restriction on drug use in public areas would prompt, quote, lone drug use and increase the number of British Columbians dying from fatal overdoses. So who the, peop the only people we are allowed to be concerned about here are drug addicts. And I'm not saying don't be concerned about drug addicts, but drug addicts take priority. And if anything we do, if we shush them away, if we say, don't do that on the playground, that might cause them, see blame shifting, you know, external locus of control, we're making them do a thing. We're going to push them into lone drug use, and that could lead to overdoses and deaths, and that would make us bad. So the children have to suck it up. Only the freedom of drug users matters. The safety of children doesn't matter. Children being shielded from seeing behavior that can kill them, that doesn't matter. What about the security of the person who is a child who has a child? Why doesn't this matter? How did we get to the point where judges think this way? It's, it's complete moral inversion. Um, got one more quote here. And this one does go on the screen. Number 13, please, Kevin. The BC coroner service has long been a vocal advocate of harm reduction, including a vast ramp up in the province's, quote, safer supply initiative. Hinkson, the judge, cited their assertion that, quote, criminalizing drug use behavior ensures an ongoing public perception that it is deviant and shameful, creating a barrier to people seeking the support they need, as well as requiring people to hide their needs for fear of criminal sanctions. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. Criminalizing behavior gives the, the message that it's deviant. It is deviant behavior. <laughs> it is. <laughs> do, you, do you see we, we're not allowed to have embarrassment, shame, or social anxiety because those are the things that kill you. If we just make the drug supply safer, if we just legalize and let them, let them have their fentanyl, then everything will be better and people will stop dying of drug overdoses. And it's not just dying of drug overdoses. Drugs kill people's ability to work, 
to get themselves ahead in life. Even if it's not death from an overdose, it can cause you to die early. I'm, we're, we're talking about hard narcotics here. How is this the sane world? How is this British? How, <laughs> the coroner service, too? So it's not just the judge. It's the coroner service doesn't want children shielded from this because the poor, you know, I'm sorry. This is where compassion ends for me. You know, it's not like it hasn't touched me personally. I was an active alcoholic for 22 years. If I didn't stop drinking when I did, I'd probably be dead now. And my drinking not only harmed me, and it did harm me in many ways, including being a huge contributor to my early heart attack. But my behavior while drinking cost me relationships from my bad behavior, my out-of-control behavior. There was nothing. I don't want that back. I don't want that for anybody. But people who choose to stay on that path cannot be allowed to run the rest of us over the edge of society's ramp. But they are allowed. All right. One more before we go to the next break here. <laughs> this one's a little bit lighter, but is anything on this show really that light? There's a definite personality type that is obsessed with COVID, still obsessed with COVID. They're paranoid. They're disconnected from reality. And they believe that normal people who aren't this paranoid are actually the abnormal people. And not only abnormal, but they're dangerous enemies. There's actually a subreddit called Zero COVID, full of people who actually are advocating for zero COVID infections. I don't know how they think they're going to enforce this. I don't know how they think they're going to make it happen, but they do. And uh, a friend of mine flagged this up for me, this absolutely extraordinary post. We've got an image of the headline here. Post titled, you look much better with your mask off. I will read to you this post from a young woman. Well, actually, I don't know if she's young. I just know that she's a woman. I do food delivery and always wear a mask during pickups and drop-offs. Yesterday, I was outside of a large commercial building and couldn't find the right address. So, while masked, I asked two middle-aged tradie construction workers nearby for directions. They were both polite and pointed me to the correct location where I went inside to deliver the food. I came back outside and removed my mask because the place was otherwise deserted and there was no one around. <laughs> Is the parking lot empty? Can I take my mask off? I mean, just the level of paranoia here. As I was walking back to my car, I saw the two men again. I smiled and thanked them for their help. Sure, no problem, they grinned. And as I was getting into my car, one of them yelled in the most condescending tone, You look much better with your mask off, by the way. I instinctively started to say thank you until I actually processed his words. I immediately closed my car door and drove away. And here we've got a couple to put on the screen for you uh, that end this off. Number 15, please, Kevin. Confronting him could have been unsafe. Two shameless creeps against one woman in a deserted area. But I felt so gross, violated, and infuriated by his COVID cat call insult, disguised as a compliment, as if my mask is just some unattractive fashion accessory, not a protective barrier that could literally save my life or the lives of others. 
Next quote. Is anyone still being verbally harassed or ridiculed by strangers for wearing a mask? What do you even say to them at the risk of retaliation? My goodness, this has everything. Rampant paranoia, the, the specter of dangerous patriarchal men, creeps, right? Two men against one woman in a deserted parking lot in the middle of the day. The narcissism of characterizing what those men said to her as a cat call. This is such a tell. Women like this get off psychologically on the perception that they are being hunted sexually. Yes, they do. They want to perceive themselves as being sexually vulnerable because then they get to be a victim about it. I'm sorry, this doesn't take away from the fact that women are sometimes targeted by creepy sexist men and by rapists. There's a reason, you know, why women are afraid to walk in cities at night because men are dangerous to women. Uh, but calling this a cat call, I mean, it's it's simultaneously like she's buffing up her own ego and pretending that she's frightened. It's, it's so bizarre um, that even the most innocuous interaction from a man is characterized this way. I mean, of course, feminism goes hand in hand with this. It's a paranoid ideology, just like zero COVIDism is a paranoid ideology. And I'll bet you anything that she calls herself a feminist. All right. We are coming up on time for a break, but I'd like to ask for your support. Will you financially help us make Disaffected? We don't have sponsors or advertisers, but we do have a loyal audience. And if you like this show, especially if you're new to us, if you've just been watching us for a little while and you like what you see here, we need your help to make it. And there's several ways that you can help support us. If you don't like to do subscriptions on a monthly basis, you can just do a one-off gift to us. Um, go to PayPal and send us a buck. Send us five bucks. Send us four bucks to the address us at disaffected.fm. So PayPal using the email address us at disaffected.fm. But if you would like to subscribe, we'd love to have you as a monthly subscriber. There's two places to do it. One is Substack, disaffectedpod.substack.com. And you'll also get writing on there. There's a lot of free stuff, but I'm, uh, I'm working on some more subscriber-only longer posts that'll be out in the next couple of weeks. You can also join us through Subscribestar, another donation platform. Go to subscribestar.com slash disaffected. And hey, Every bit helps, and we thank you. We'll see you on the other side. Can't get enough of our love, baby? That's because you're not subscribed. Move that thumb over to the great big old subscribe button on your podcast app so you never miss an episode. We put out audio-only exclusive content that you won't get on any other video platform, so make sure you subscribe today. Looking for a non-woke place to put your money where your mouth is? Put it where my mouth is. Disaffected supporters get access to our private Discord chat server, backstage episode recording sessions, surprise guests, and more, and all it takes is $10 a month. You've got two options. Either Substack, visit us at disaffectedpod.substack.com or go over to subscribestar.com slash disaffected. Remember, choose the $10 level or higher for Discord access.
Welcome back. Do you need somebody to talk to? Have you got a problem in your family life, your work life? Are you dealing with somebody that you think has some abusive qualities? Are you in a psychologically deranging situation? Do the topics that we talk about on this show resonate for you, unfortunately, in a personal way, <laughs> the way they did for me? Well, you can talk to me. I offer one-hour coaching and consulting sessions to people about relationship problems, whether they're professional, academic, uh, personal, and family. I've had clients who've come to talk to me about advancing in their careers, um, bosses that they're not able to get around, uh, parents, siblings, even children sometimes uh, who are having problems having to do with trauma, sometimes personality disorders. Uh, and what I say to people on the website and what I would say to you is what I can offer you is somebody who is personally knowledgeable and becoming more professionally uh, knowledgeable uh, about dealing with this. Um, as you know, this has affected my life. Uh, and there's a lot of commonality when you come from a family that has abusive characteristics. We all speak the same language in a certain way. So if you'd like to talk privately and focus on some difficulties in your own life, what I can do for you is give you a third-party perspective that's informed, that understands what these dynamics are like in ways that maybe you haven't had with uh, other people you've talked to before and, and unfortunately sometimes not even with therapists. So if this is of interest to you, um, visit my site, joshuaslocum.net. You can book time there. And if you are a disaffected supporter, you get a 30% discount and that also applies to returning clients. So again, I'd be happy to talk to you. Reach out to me at joshuaslocum.net. <clears throat> I want to give you an update on a story we brought to you a few weeks ago. Was it a few weeks ago or a few months ago? I have no sense of time this week. This was the shooting in Burlington, Vermont that took place, uh, I believe, late uh, Thanksgiving or the day after uh, last year. Back in November, a white man in Burlington shot three young men who were uh, Palestinian. They were here celebrating Thanksgiving with friends. We told you about this, and we knew exactly where it was going to go, and we were sadly right. <clears throat> Immediately, the Burlington mayor, the chief of police, the state's attorneys, President Joe Biden, um, national media, grabbed the headlines everywhere. They all immediately declared this a hate crime. The implication what it was <clears throat> that the shooter, of course, being a middle-aged white man, was a bad far-right extremist who just hated because he hates and hates and hates and especially hates anybody who's not white. The narrative was set immediately. Here's some examples. Senator Peter Welch tweeted right after this happened, I'm heartbroken by yesterday's senseless shooting of three Palestinian American students visiting Burlington. We do not tolerate hate or Islamia Islamia. <laughs> Where are you going on vacation? Well, the New Republic of Islamia, of course. Let me start again. Peter Welch says, we do not tolerate hate or Islamophobia in Vermont. Thank you, Peter. Sarah George, state's attorney, our prosecutor. Quote, I do want to be clear that there is no question this was a hateful act. Well, thank you, Sarah. I, I, too, find it fairly hateful to shoot people unprovoked for no reason. But I don't mean what you mean. 
<laughs> then we have Burlington Chief of Police John Murad, who said, in this charged moment, no one can look at this incident and not suspect that it may have been a hate-motivated crime. Yes, anyone could, and anyone did. And it turns out, just as, just as we suspected, this was a media setup job. Front Page Magazine has a really good update on this story. You should check it out. I'll read to you a little bit from it. The Arab, the American Arab Anti-Discrimination Committee falsely claimed that a, quote, man shouted and harassed the victims, then proceeded to shoot them. We have reason to believe this shooting occurred because the victims are Arab. In reality, they had been shot by a local resident outside his house who did not say a word. The three Muslim men were returning home from a party on a Saturday night when James J. Eaton, a local resident with a history of mental instability, stumbled out of a white clabbered house on the residential street and without a word fired four shots at the three men. Uh, breaking in here, they, thankfully these, these young men were not killed. They were injured and some more seriously than others, but thank goodness they didn't lose their lives. <clears throat> Back to the story. Eden had been described. Are you ready for this? Okay. <laughs> Remember, far right, alt right, white supremacist extremist. That's what you're supposed to believe. Eden had been described as, quote, that hippie guy and as, quote, progressive, an organic farmer who had posted a meme with the definition of America, spelled with a K, that called it, quote, the worst sense of the United States, imperialism, corruption, and the global exportation of American culture. He appeared to be a Biden supporter. Again, I'm reading to you from Front Page Magazine's encapsulation. Media outlets, anti-Israel activists, and politicians attributed the shootings to the Hamas war. Everyone from Biden and Kamala on down emphasized the Palestinian identities of those shot and implied that Eaton had attacked them because he was opposed to the, quote, Palestinian cause. In reality, front page mag says, Eaton supported Hamas. On December 6th, seven days, a local news outlet known for breaking stories about local politics revealed that Eden had tweeted, quote, the notion that Hamas is evil for defending their state from occupation is absurd. They are owed a state. Pay up, end quote. In responding to an article about a proposed ceasefire, he wrote, quote, what if someone occupied your country? Wouldn't you fight them? End quote. Local politicians were aware of this, which is why in December, a Burlington City Council resolution from Councilman Ali Djang, an African Muslim immigrant currently running for mayor, trying to tie the shootings to an attack on Israel, this resolution failed. And so did a resolution pushing the false claim that the students had been targeted because of their identity. Well, you know audience, that's interesting that that resolution failed because the Burlington City Council has had a pretty good track record of getting through resolutions based on false premises, such as the one that they, um, the one that they passed that, while not naming us, uh, took aim at everyone on the disaffected crew and some of our friends and supporters who've been involved in pushing back against transgender indoctrination of children and blamed us for the murder of a so-called trans woman. So I'm actually surprised that Ali Jang's resolution didn't get full approval. Anyway, 
It's exactly what we thought. It's a guy with a history of mental problems. This is how far away from reality we are in our country. Vermont is not unique this way. It may be one of the worst in terms of being very blue, very woke. But this is going on in your state, too. Your public officials, all of them, from the smallest local level up to the presidency, are lying to you every single day in lockstep. I suppose it's possible that it's always been this bad, but I don't, I don't think it has always been quite this bad. But I told you, I'm kind of black-pilled this week. All right. <clears throat> We've talked a lot on this show about what some people call gynocentrism. It's the idea that women are just better, smarter, more productive, more creative, more peaceful, that we need more women in all positions of power at every level of public and uh, professional power running things. Of course, Hillary Clinton's been saying for years that the future is female. This has been building for a while, but this gynocentric attitude, I, I hesitate to call it matriarchy because I don't... We don't live in a patriarchy and we don't live in a matriarchy either, but it, it's, it's somewhat close to that. So we'll stick with gynocentrism. This whole idea has been building for a while, but it is so normalized now that, that national media figures on the news don't even hide their naked contempt for men as men. National news anchors treat it as if it were just universally accepted knowledge that men are inferior and it's always better when women are in charge. Take this example from CBS Evening News' Nora O'Donnell reporting on the election outcome of the St. Paul, Minnesota City Council. I think you'll like this story. History was made in Minnesota's capital city of St. Paul today. Or should we say, herstory was made. St. Paul's new city council was sworn in this afternoon made up entirely of women. And get this, six of the seven council members are women of color, and they are all under the age of 40. Four of them are new members and say that affordable housing and access to child care are some of their top priorities. Congratulations to them and the people of St. Paul. I am betting that they get some stuff done. Are you? Are you betting? She's practically shivering with delight, isn't she? Or should I say, history? I think you're going to like this one. Do you see it? I see it. What is this? Nora's talking only to women. Well, actually, she's talking to women and the unfortunately large number of men who have been conditioned to accept this degradation as normal. This isn't just elevating women. This is degrading men. I'll bet they're going to get some stuff done. That means men don't get anything done. That's why we need women running things, right? I know, I know, everybody says this is the cheapest way to possibly say it, but I don't know any other way to to foreground it better than this. Just reverse the roles. Pretend that this was a man, a male news anchor, talking about an election at a city council in a major American city. 
with all men going, hmm, that's why they call it his tree. I bet they're going to get it done. People would lose their freaking minds because it would be ridiculous. This is ridiculous. It's not just ridiculous. It's sinister. This CBS Evening News. I know. I know. (sighs) (laughs) There are no more glass ceilings left to break. We're all walking around on the shards from the glass ceilings they've already broken, getting our feet cut to hell while everyone pretends it's great and we need yet more glass ceiling breaking. It's a farce. We've got to pull back from this. Do you want more? Let's fly the friendly skies. I've been seeing a lot of this lately on social media. There's, uh, (laughs) well, the airline industry has unfortunately been in the headlines a lot more lately, hasn't it, for doors blowing out of Boeing airplanes and lots of talk about the DEI initiatives at companies like Delta Airlines. Did you know Delta? I should have pulled this for the show. Delta recently sent around to their employees a language guide about what words they're supposed to use, what words they are not supposed to use, how they're to write terms, and they explicitly instruct their employees to always capitalize the B in black when referring to black people and never to capitalize the W in white. It's right there in black and white. I saw it on the slide. It came from multiple sources. Are things getting better? Isn't it an extinction burst? Or are we just getting more of what we're going to live with for the rest of our lives? Well, Southwest would like us to um, get her done, too. Take a look at this. This is what they put up on Twitter. It's a picture of one, two, three, four, five female flight crew. Everybody from flight attendants to the pilots themselves. They're all women. And Southwest says, all female flight crew, go off, queens. Work, work, girl, serve us, queen. The whole world has become RuPaul's Drag Race. (laughs) Unbelievable. All right. Our final story tonight is, well, it's kind of about infrastructure breaking down too, but in a different way. Safeway, the grocery store, is um, leaving a San Francisco neighborhood, and people are not happy about it. This store in the Fillmore neighborhood is closing up shop because of theft and bad sales, as so many stores are leaving cities like San Francisco and New York and Los Angeles because crime is rampant. Police don't arrest anybody. I mean, in California, there's a, I I don't remember if it was the law or if it's a directive from the governor, but they're They're simply, prosecutors are simply not prosecuting theft and shoplifting of, um, I think, $900 or $950 or less. So you can just get away with it. And we've seen the videos. They're all over the place. People just walk into stores with bags, start putting merchandise in, stealing. Stealing in, in hefty bags and walking right out and nobody does a goddamn thing. The security guards are scared to do anything because companies won't let them. Cops won't show up to back them up. Let me read to you a little bit from the San Francisco Chronicle. Safeway is closing a store in the Fillmore neighborhood in March, which means there will be no grocery store there. Um, actually, this is me. I'm not yet reading to you from the San Francisco Chronicle. Let me, um, let me do that. 
Patty Scott, who has lived in the Freedom West co-op for 50 years, knew that the store was troubled. After all, efforts to deal with its problems were hard to miss. Much of the inventory is locked behind plexiglass. The self-checkout kiosks were shut down to cut down on the theft. Well, I can't be sorry about that. <clears throat> there have been community meetings to address <clears throat> loitering, drug use, and homeless encampments on the property. The store would blast classical music in its parking lot to discourage loitering at night. But Scott didn't think that Safeway would go so far as to shut down a supermarket that Fillmore residents, predominantly black and working class, have supported for 40 years. Well, if they're predominantly black and working class, how dare Safeway make a business decision? Why are you punishing people of color? <laughs> Maddie Scott is described in this article as a civil rights leader, because it is, remember, 1964 in America. Quote, this is quote 21, Kevin. We have to suffer because of a drug epidemic in our city, which we know has a lot to do with the robberies. It's not right and it's not fair. You are adding weight to what is already a heavy burden for people in this community, says Maddie Scott. So Safeway is adding to the burden, not the criminals, not the police department that is underfunded and unresponsive, not the government, which will not fund the police department and doesn't care about public safety, not the prosecutors who put people back out on bail after armed robbery the very next day. No, it's Safeway, the grocery store, which itself is suffering. Obviously, they, stores don't close down profitable locations. They are obviously losing money because of theft and because of customers being driven away and probably staff being driven away by the amount of crime that goes on on that street. But Maddie Scott, civil rights leader, is talking about why is Safeway punishing the community? You know, the predominantly black and working class community. How about you mind your own community, Maddie? You think about that? Where's this behavior coming from? It's not white outside agitators, is it? This is extraordinary entitlement. These people have extraordinary entitlement and blame shifting. More from the article. On Tuesday, supervisor, that is city supervisor, Dean Preston, who represents the Fillmore District, introduced a resolution demanding that Safeway reverse its plan to close the store and called for the supermarket chain to work with residents and the city to, quote, develop a plan for the site that centers the needs of the community, <laughs> end quote. Next one from him, quote 22, Kevin. I stand in solidarity with the community and urge Safeway to rescind the closure plan and meet with the community and city leaders to develop a plan for this crucial site in the heart of the Fillmore that not only avoids harm, but actually benefits the community. Safeway should remain open until the developer buying the property breaks ground, says City Supervisor Dean Preston. Well, did you hear that, Safeway? Don't punish the community. Stay open. Keep losing money until other people decide that you're allowed to leave. That's all we got for the show this week. Thanks for listening. Thanks for watching. We'll see you next weekend.